we'll continue with the teaching time of our morning together. You know, it really is amazing how reliant we are on technology, isn't it? And when it works, it works fantastic for check-in, for all of our projection systems and stuff. And when it doesn't work, that's okay. We're, uh, we're plowing through. So uh, Eric and the team at the back are doing a fantastic job. So thank you guys for working that through. Well, he was stuck. He was sinking deeper and deeper and deeper into the mud with every movement of his body. And he knew it wouldn't be long before his old body wouldn't be able to take this kind of deprivation anymore. But at this point, what could he do? He was literally starving to death at the bottom of a muddy pit. Jeremiah thought back on how his life had progressed and how it had come to this. He was a previously well-respected prophet, but he'd been placed under arrest for the simple crime of relaying a message from the Lord that the city of Jerusalem was going to be defeated by the king of Babylon. And the king of his day was so weak and feckless that he was too easily influenced. And so Pashur and some of his cronies in the king's court labeled Jeremiah a traitor, and that was all it took to get him arrested. Then they took the next step and asked for permission to kill him. He was undermining morale, they said, and he needed to be dealt with. It wasn't enough for these men that he was locked up in a jail where he couldn't talk to anybody. They actually needed him dead. And so they lowered him by ropes into a deep, mostly empty cistern, an old well. They wanted him to suffer before he died and drowned in the mud. Jeremiah remembered being dragged from his prison cell and lowered by ropes into a deep and mostly empty cistern in the prison yard. An old well, he thought to himself. My life is going to end stuck in the mud at the bottom of an old well, he thought to himself. Because the mud was like quicksand as he was sinking deeper and deeper with every moment that, movement that he made, however slight. And an old poem came to his mind that schoolgirls used to tease each other and taunt each other. It said, they lied to you and did you in, those so-called friends you had, and now you're stuck knee-deep in mud. Your friends left you for dead. You can read all about Jeremiah's experience and the book that bears his name in the Old Testament. And the part of his story where he gets thrown into this well is in Jeremiah chapter 38. And at the bottom of that cistern, I have to wonder... What was going through Jeremiah's mind, other than the poem, which is also recorded in Jeremiah 38? If I was him, and I'm stuck at the bottom of a well, sinking into the mud, for doing what God asked me to do, I have a couple of questions. If I was honest, I'd have some good questions to be asking God about my experience. I'd say to God, why did you give me a prophetic message that was dangerous for my health? Why am I being persecuted for simply telling people the obvious truth? It doesn't even take a prophetic word to know that the city's going to fall to Babylon. They're a huge economic and military power in the ancient world. They can crush us. And yet I speak up and tell people that, and now here I am. God, why don't you get me out of this mess? I'm drowning here. Well, last week we began a teaching series in the book of Lamentations called 
why God? Good questions to ask about bad things. And last week we explored the question, why do good things happen to bad people? And we listened to the cries of the author of the book of Lamentations, likely Jeremiah, was asking. And in chapter 1, those cries were familiar cries to many of us. Like, why God? Why is this happening to me? Don't you hear me? Aren't you listening? Don't you see what's going on in my life? Why is this happening to me? And these honest kind of questions, these from-the-gut kind of emotional, um, visceral questions are often breezed over by the contemporary Western church in favor of sunnier and more upbeat parts of the Bible. But if we're honest with ourselves, if we're honest with each other and with the stories of people that you know, and maybe your own story, we know experientially, we know intuitively, we know theologically, we live in a broken world. And each of us experiences that brokenness and measures of that brokenness in different ways. We experience suffering and pain and loss and confusion. And so last week we heard a few stories from people who hang out here at Jericho Ridge. We heard from Daryl and Jody as they talked about their experiences walking through a number of years ago, losing a child in the first 10 days of Sam's life. And we heard with Peter, who wrestled with the question of why would God give me a genetic condition that has no cure, that makes daily challenges absolutely intense, and in other parts of the globe, like East Africa, puts my life at risk. Why would you do that? And when we experience these kinds of questions or these kinds of hardships or experiences in our own life or in those around us, or as we look at the news and watch the world, And we see people or we ourselves are walking through deep waters. It's very natural to try and make sense of those experiences and to ask why questions. To try and create meaning out of chaotic and difficult challenges and circumstances in our life. And so as human beings, we're wired to ask those types of questions. Why is this happening to me? Why now? And then we we often will ask where questions related to those. Where is God in the midst of this experience? And today our question that we want to wrestle with is, why does God seem sometimes particularly silent or distant when we're in the middle of those experiences? Why when sometimes we feel that we need God the most, when we're at our darkest hour sinking to the bottom of a muddy pit, God can seem the quietest or the furthest away. Why is that? And what should our responses be? The question of silence, of God's silence, is a really good one. And if we're honest, I think there's more examples of it in the Bible than we often look for. I think about the deafening silence that echoed in Abraham's experience. God told him, I want you to take your firstborn son, the son of the promise, that I have said I will build your family to bless all of the peoples of the earth. You've waited for decades and decades of your life. I have given you this miraculous child, and I want you to take him up to the top of Mount Moriah, and I want you to kill him. And as Abraham walked that lonely road, God's voice was silent. What was he thinking? 
What questions were bubbling to the surface of his mind in that silence? I think of Job, who asks for vindication from God. And instead, three friends, friends, come into Job's life and tell him that what a wretched sinner, horrible sinner that he is, and that's why God is punishing him in this way. And nothing Job says to the contrary can assist him in his friends in that conversation. God is silent until the very end of the book. There's no record of God speaking to Joseph in prison in Egypt. John the Baptist even experiences silence. People that that encounter Jesus personally when he walked on the earth. Mary and Martha, silence when they say, why didn't you come and heal our brother right away? Three days, Jesus waits. Silence from him. John the Baptist isn't sure if Jesus is who he says he is, asks Jesus, and then shortly thereafter, he's beheaded. Silence in the text, in that experience. John wrestles with those questions. Surely he and others cried out to God to spare his life, but divine silence can be deafening to us. And it can also be very confusing. And it echoes prominently and personally through the book of Lamentations. Lamentations is is a poetic reflection on the events of Jeremiah's day and age. When the Babylonian army has come into the city of Jerusalem and has totally destroyed it, killed and taken captive an entire nation, and they will not return for decades of their existence. They've absolutely obliterated off of the landscape. And so Lamentations is wrestling with the why, God? Why would this happen? God, let this happen. And so the author in chapter 3, likely Jeremiah, lays their experiences and their questions out there for all of us to wrestle with. Follow with me on your smartphone or uh, on version or in your Bible in Lamentations chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 1 to 19, the first couple verses, and then the last couple verses will come up on the screens. Lamentations 3, 1 says... I am the one who has seen the afflictions that come from the rod of the Lord's anger. He's led me into darkness, shutting out all light. He has turned his hand against me again and again all day long. He's made my skin and my flesh grow old. He's broken my bones. He's besieged and surrounded me, anguish and distress. He's buried me in a dark place like those long dead. God has walled me in. I cannot escape. He's bound me with heavy chains. I cry out. I shout but he shut out my prayers. He's blocked my way, like with a high stone wall. He's made my road crooked. He's hidden, like a bear or like a lion, just waiting to attack me. He's dragged me off the path, torn me in pieces, leaving me helpless and devastated. He's drawn his bow. He's made me a target for his arrows. He shot his arrows deep into my heart. My own people laugh at me. All day long, they sing their mocking songs. He's filled me with bitterness. He's given me a bitter cup of sorrow to drink. He's made me chew on gravel. He's rolled me in the dust. Peace has been stripped away. I've forgotten what prosperity even is. And I cry out. My splendor is gone. Everything I hope for from the Lord is lost. The thought of my suffering and homelessness is bitter beyond words. It's 
It's not often a book that's preached on in the North American context, and you can see why. It's very raw. It's very honest. It's very real. The writer says, God, it feels dark. I cry out to you. I shout. I feel like you don't hear me. It's dark down here, God. I just don't understand why this is happening to me. And we heard last weekend how part of our heart in this series and teaching through this is to allow you to hear the questions and experiences of those who are sitting around you and what they have experienced as they have walked through some of those places. So I'm going to ask Al Thiessen if he would come up and he's going to share some of his story with you this morning. And uh, Al, you guys have a lot to share. I mean, in the last couple of years, you've weathered a heart attack and heard a experiencing cancer. Uh, but those are stories actually for another time. You're going to share another part of your experience with us uh, here today. But um, this writer in Lamentations and people talk about those dark experiences in their soul and in their life um, from a spiritual perspective often. But there can be other things in play there as well. Take us through a little bit of, of your journey. Well, when I was 34 years old, I went through about a year of depression, and there were uh, signs of something going on in my life months before that, but because I didn't know what those things meant, I didn't, uh, I paid attention to them, but I didn't do anything about it, mm. until one day your body and your mind just says, that's enough, and it just shuts down, and I had never experienced that before, and so... And I would say some of the uh, signs that something was happening, and I would say um, after going afterwards to the doctor and that, it was probably related to stress. I'll switch out so you can I'm switch out. There you go. Thanks. It was probably related <clears throat> to stress uh, on a number of levels. One thing, uh, I was doing too many things in my life. Uh, I was a job site superintendent on a complicated job site. And probably one of the more significant things at that stage was on that particular job with the uh, owner that I was working for, I was expected to lie and to cheat uh, for the sake of making money for the owner. And somehow that was at cross purposes with my value system, and that, that created uh, stress in itself. And so probably for about five or six or seven months before the day that was June the 5th, 1985. Uh, I had some of these signs, and some of them were uh, significant changes in my sleep pattern, uh, which is one of the things that is sort of typical, but you don't know what that means. Uh, and so uh, basically being tired, going to sleep, and waking up at 2 or 3 in the morning, and then not being able to sleep and starting to worry about stuff. Uh, and inability to plan ahead and uh, in life, but in particularly when you're a job site superintendent, you've got a, you know, 18, 24-month job, you have a critical path that you start here, you end here, and along the way you've got to do certain things. And I had an increasing inability to plan ahead. And I didn't know what that meant, but that was okay at that time, I thought. Uh, feeling like I was being in a dark hole and no light anywhere. It was like getting darker and darker, like that picture of Jeremiah. That was very good, except there was no light coming. And uh, having an increasing feeling of being overwhelmed with everything, which 
wasn't typical. Like, I should be able to handle this. And so, uh, one day, it just all stopped. Uh, I went to the job site in the morning. Uh, the owner came around once or twice a month to sort of look how things were going. And I showed the owner around, came back to the office on my job site trailer, and I just broke down and cried. Most embarrassing thing in my life. 34-year-old guy who thinks he can do everything, and I'm bawling like a baby, uncontrolled, in front of my boss. And because I've been going through months of this and not thinking as clearly as I might, um, I was sure that they were going to put me in jail because I had told them that I could finish this job and now I wasn't going to be able to finish the job, but I didn't care anymore because I just couldn't do anything. And the boss did something uncharacteristic from my perspective. The boss said, take your boots, go home, go see a doctor, don't worry about this job ever again. I went through something like this years ago. I know what it is. I have a job site superintendent who will come here and finish this. You just go home and get better. You've got medical insurance, unemployment. You've got a year. Go get better. I was so surprised. Then I came home and went to the fetal position at 34 years old on the couch and heard a look at me and going, what's this? And she said to me, Al, I'll love you no matter what. And to me, that was amazing words that she didn't even know why she said that. And she, I mean, she loves me, but she didn't know why she said that at that time. And so, I, you know, there are good things that, like when Ron Zacharias said this morning, if God seems far away, who's moved? That's okay sometimes. But I probably was as working as hard and being as close to God as I ever thought I could be. And it still seemed far away. And so that was a dark time that I didn't have any answers for yeah. that. So what would you say to someone in that type of an experience then, or someone that even feels like that describes a little bit uh, about their life, or it feels familiar or resembles theirs? Where did you begin to see things change, and maybe what hasn't changed? Too? Yeah, okay. So, going into this journey, so, you know, going to see the doctor, I said, well, how long is this going to last? A couple of weeks? And he goes, uh, I don't know, he said, because if you think about it, how long have you not listened to your body? And I said, probably eight months. And he said, well, your body's going to take at least that long to get better, but he says, there are people in his, in his practice that he had seen who you just don't know. And so he put me on medication and determined that it was partly a chemical imbalance from the stress. And I said, well, how do I know? Just, I'm not answering your question quite That's yet. That's right. <laughs> how do you know when this, I said, how do I know when this is over? And he said, well, one day you'll wake up and the sun will have color. And 10 months later, that's what happened. One day I woke up and the sun had color. And I went to him and he said, okay. And started taking me off the medication. And so that was that. But in that journey, about two weeks into that journey from when I crashed, I remember I had a crisis of faith in my life. And I, sitting there deliberately thinking, either God is not who he says he is, which is, he loves me, he's in control, he knows the beginning from the end, because this shouldn't be happening to somebody who is working in the church, trying to be a good dad, trying to be a good husband. Like, this doesn't fit. Or, my understanding of God is incorrect. Mm -hmm. And I had to battle that out. 
And I came up with the idea that my understanding of God must be wrong, and I'm, I'll have to work on that. And so that was the journey, and that's the journey I've been on since that time in my life, is, is working through that. And uh, I came up with two things that, out of that experience. One is that I was worth less than I thought I was, and the fact that the world doesn't need me to save it. It's not all about me. Here for 10 months, people were carrying on, things were happening. Yes, those close to me were probably struggling a little bit and suffering more, but the world itself, the church went on. Uh, so I, I realized that I was worth less than I thought I was. I also realized that I was worth more than I thought I was because everything that I had built my self-esteem upon was taken away. And I still figured out that God loved me and died for me, and I'd be okay. Now there was a place in heaven for me in spite of not being able to do anything. So that has really uh, changed my worldview since that time. And so a couple of things is uh, the song, Choosing to Save. I think there's a difference between God feeling far away and God being far away. And they're really, you know, you've got to work at that. There's really no easy answers, but if God feels for it, it doesn't mean he is. You've got to tell yourself that. And having people around you. Uh, going to see a doctor, I think, is some of the good things that one needs to start to do to talk about things. What hasn't changed is we still don't get to write the chapters in our life, but we do get to live them. And we do have a choice in how to live them. And so just in a in closing, like last year when Herta was diagnosed with breast cancer, we both had the sense that, okay, we're okay with what God is doing. So the why question, even though it came up, didn't have to be worked through at such a deep level because we had already done that. And we still don't quite understand everything and we won't. But the why question wasn't as difficult because we were okay, well, we'd seen God work. Okay, well, whatever. Yeah, yeah. That's great. Let's thank Al for sharing his story with us. You know, in, in these circumstances, uh, Al's looking back and reflecting on his life and his journey, and Daryl and Jody were doing that uh, last weekend as well. And so you hear people who have uh, done the work of wrestling with some of these questions, and it's a gift for the rest of us who at some point might walk into places like that. And so make sure if you need to act on that in any way or initiate conversations with them, uh, then please, or with any of the pastoral team, please feel free to do that. Um, One of the dangers that can happen is in Christian community, sometimes we don't share our story until we actually feel like we've got it all together and processed and we can reflect backly, neatly, and tidily on it. It's wrapped up with a neat little bow on the top of it. And at the conclusion of our time uh, together last weekend, you heard April kind of plead with us not to do that and not sort of to fall prey into that and to remember that there's people around you and I who are still in the middle of their experiences and uh, who are walking that journey still. And so I think that calls something different out of us as a community and as individuals. And it can be a real challenge, living to, without a clear sense of some of the questions of why. So I'm going to ask Sean Olson if he would come up at this time. And Sean's been hanging around Jericho Ridge uh, for a little while. And April introduced uh, part of his story 
to you last weekend. And so we thought, well, let's, uh, let's have you tell it in your own words. And uh, I know this is a little outside. Public speaking in general is outside of your comfort zone. So we appreciate this very much. Uh, and I know that the answer to this question could actually fill five hours of content. So people have to take you out for coffee and explore it other. But take us through... Sean, like the, the physical or the medical aspect of your journey, just so that people understand a little bit of context for you. Uh, yeah, okay. So um, I was a regular kid, I would say, until about uh, 10 years old. That, uh, I just got really sick really suddenly. Uh, they had no idea what it was, and it was doing horrible things to my body. My kidneys were shutting down, all sorts of things, and the doctors had no idea what it was. And I think about... Half a year into it, they, they finally figured it out. I had some really, really rare disease that like 13 other people have been recorded having. That was the youngest case to ever exist. And there was a treatment for it, so they gave it to me. But what came out of that was um, my kidneys had failed completely. There was no saving them. There was no nothing. So I would need a kidney transplant. <laughs> and uh, so... About another year and a half after that, uh, I was really sick, and I get recovered, and all this other stuff, that I was ready for a kidney transplant, and I got one from my uncle, which isn't a fix to medical problems. It's it's a Band-Aid, and um, uh, it wasn't exactly a perfect transplant either. Uh, I had lots of issues with it. I got kidney stones in the kidney transplant. It's all sorts of stuff really weird, rare complications, and um, it eventually failed when I was 20, 21-ish, and uh, I go back on dialysis, and I'm, I'm currently on dialysis still, and uh, it takes three, three days a week out of my life, four hours, it, it, it's completely draining, you lose a whole day, and uh, that's, that's where I'm at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and those are just the good weeks. Yeah. So, um, in the midst of that experience, that's sort of the the physical experience of it for you. Switch the lens for us and talk to us a little bit about the spiritual experience of that. Like, what's the spiritual aspect of your journey? And then, where are you at right now with things? Uh, So, growing up, uh, my family was not religious in any way whatsoever. And... uh, I didn't know anything about God other than what I had seen in media or my own ideas about it. And uh, when I got sick, uh, being a 10-year-old kid, you don't want to be sick. And that much pain and suffering, you just don't want. So I turned to what I think would fix it, and I turned to God. And I would pray and plead with God and ask where he was and why he would do this to me or what did I do wrong or... All sorts of stuff. Every wide question you could think. I, I thought it. And uh, every bargaining tool or pleading chip you've ever thought to God, I've, I thought it myself. I went through it. And um, he never answered. And uh, he was never there. I never felt his presence or any sort of thing like that. He just wasn't there. It was just me in the dark well by myself, pleading to God. And... Um, so I eventually developed ideas of what God was, if he existed, that he didn't like me very much, and I didn't like him very much. 
And that's, that's where I stood for uh, a very long time until uh, I met these two weird guys one day who uh, were talking about Jesus and all this other stuff. And Normally I would blow those people off and just, they're weirdos and whatever. And they asked to talk to me about it. And uh, I don't know, through some sort of grace or just the hand of God, really, that he was able to reach into like such a hard heart. And he was able to soften it just, just a little, a little and I, I let these two people into my life, and um, they taught me about God, and uh, they showed me what he really was, and it wasn't necessarily my fault, or that he wasn't there, like, all sorts of stuff, and um, it's not like they completely fixed me, and I, I don't think God's not there, like, I struggle with that every day, like, I'll have a bad dialysis day, and like, blame God, and I'll get angry, and like, I'll just, he sucks, and I just, I want to turn away, and all sorts of stuff like that, and uh, it's tough, but um, it takes a lot of faith, I would think, to keep, keep following that path, but that's, that's where I am. So, talk to us a little bit then about what do you feel like you need as you continue in this journey then from a group of people like us? And then what do you for sure not need uh, from a group of people like this? How's that? Uh, I don't know what I need. Like, if I knew that, I'd probably go get it, right? Like, want it instantly. But uh, I do when I know what I not need. Mm-hmm. And that's, I don't really want people's sympathy. Like, that is the worst. I don't, like... When you're sick and someone gives you sympathy, you're, it, it kind of crosses that line of, oh, they might be pitying me. They're only doing it because I am sick. I just really want to be normal, right? Like, that's what every sick person wants is just to be normal. So I think sympathy is the worst thing ever. Don't do that. If you see a need, fill it. Don't go asking, oh, what can I get for you? Or what can I do? Just, there's a need, fill it. Yeah. I think that's good because you, in conversations with people when I'm sort of standing beside you sometimes on Friday Night Live, I can see people trying to process and you can just see sort of like pity coming over their face. I'm like, don't go there, don't go there, Sean doesn't want it. Um, And so I think uh, I appreciate you being honest with us on that front and that this is still a journey. And, you know, you talk today about where you're at, next week, tomorrow, five minutes from now, it could be somewhere different. And so I think it's important to acknowledge that, and I want to thank you for being honest in that journey with us. So let's thank Sean for being honest with us. You know, I think uh, Sean's story and Al's story, they highlight for us just some important aspects of what to do, what not to do, how to think, how not to think when God seems silent or distant, even in your own journey uh, or when you're walking with someone. And these come up in Lamentations chapter 3 in the text. And so if you still got your Bible open, look with me at Lamentations 3 verse 21. So what do you do when God seems distant or silent? Lamentations 3.21 says, in the midst, I'll never forget this awful time as I grieve over my loss. So it's not a sort of just glib, oh, that was then, this is now. So I'm, I'm going to, I hold this, this pain, this suffering, this experience. Yet, verse 21, I still dare to hope. And the, the hope that 
the gospel gives to us and that the Christian story gives to us is not a wishful kind of thinking, like, oh, I hope this maybe will happen, or like the musical Annie, you know, the sun will come out tomorrow, bet your bottom dollar that tomorrow there'll be sun. It's not that kind of hope. Um, the reminder is to actually place our hope not in circumstances, strategies, solutions that we can wish or dream up, but verse 22, I call this to mind. I dare to hope when I remember this, and that is that the faithful love of the Lord never ends. C.S. Lewis reminds us our feelings will come and go, but God's love for us does not come and go. And so the Christian story gives us a resource to actually be able to keep hope alive in the midst of hardship and pain and suffering. And physical suffering in particular, physical hardships can often be the most challenging type to keep pain alive because everything about our lives, we experience it through the physical world. So it mediates and and taints and colors all of our experiences through our physical bodies. And so we can only dare to hope in the midst of perceived silence or silence because of a certainty that we do have that one day God will make all things new and that that is our ultimate hope. God may seem or appear distant or silent in the present and in the words of Romans chapter 8, that results in something. As believers, we groan. We don't have words to express it. We're just, there's frustration in our lives. The Holy Spirit, we have the Holy Spirit in us, a taste of the future, but it doesn't take that groaning away. For as long as our bodies, we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We long for the bodies of friends and family that we know to be released from sin and suffering. We wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as adopted children, including the new bodies that he has promised to us. And so we dare to hope in the midst of depression or complete kidney failure or cancer and sickness and death only because one day our physical bodies will be released from sin and suffering. We don't grieve, the scripture says, like those who have no hope, and we also don't suffer like those who have no hope, which sounds great, right? But it's what we do in the meantime that is actually the part that we wrestle with when God feels distant or silent. So yeah, keep hoping that's an ultimate sense, what we would want to build into our lives. So what do you do in the meantime? Keep talking. I love how the author of Lamentations uh, puts this in verse 24. I say to myself, it's like self-talk. I have to tell myself. I have to keep talking to myself. I have to keep reminding myself of things. The Lord is my inheritance, therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who depend on him, to those who search for him. It's like the author knows they're prone to forgetting in the darkness what you knew to be true, when you experienced it in the light. So what do you do when you find yourself in the dark, uh, in the bottom of a dark and muddy pit? You keep talking. First, maybe to keep your own sanity. A bit of healthy self-talk. But notice again here, what the author is telling himself matters. It's not just, buck up, you'll be okay, tomorrow will be better. The type of self-talk is actually important here. It's not a bland, campy kind of inner monologue. I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be okay. The writer reminds themselves of something. He reminds themselves of their relationship with God. I say to myself, 
I need to search for God because God is faithful. God can be trusted. This is one of the reasons for me that I keep a a journal of when I'm going through the scriptures because when God teaches me something about himself, I want to write it down because tomorrow I may not feel that great about it or I may not remember it. Five minutes after I close my Bible, I may not remember it, but I'm going to need to call it to my mind in the midst of some time when I'm not going to feel in the same way that I felt at that moment, so I got to write it down. And if I can forget them quickly, that becomes a mechanism to remember them in the midst of times of difficulty and challenges. So I go back. I actually go back and read my journal entries at some point. And so in doing that, you're actually kind of calling to mind things about God's character. Staying in the scriptures in that time when you can is important to call things to mind about God's character. So you're talking to yourself. Also, keep talking to God. We talked last week about the fact that, you know, in the midst of of suffering and in the midst of challenges, God can handle your tough conversations and questions with him railing against God, being angry with him, questioning him. Read the Psalms. They're full of that kind of language. Talk to God. Keep talking to him. Keep processing too with trusted friends. Sometimes the easiest and most natural thing to do when you're in a time of challenge and in a time of suffering is to want to pull away and isolate yourself, just to hibernate, cut off contact with people, but when people don't know what's going on, they, they can't be expected to know how to help you. Don't clamp up. Find people who can take it. Not everybody can take it. When you're in the midst of a difficult challenge and you're not having a good day and you need to process and be raw with somebody, not all of your friends are good people to be able to process that with. You need to find those people who are good to, for that and who can handle that kind of processing with you. Keep talking to them. Keep talking to God. Keep talking to yourself. Keep talking to trusted friends. So keep talking. Keep hoping. Keep talking. But also, the writer says, keep listening. It's good to wait quietly for salvation from the Lord. Be quiet. Let God do some talking. Sit alone in silence beneath the Lord's demands. Lie face down in the dust. There may be hope at last. Because in the midst of our pain, God can seem so distant and silent. Sometimes, if you still your heart and your rage long enough, God is actually continuing to speak to you. You can get quiet enough to hear him. In the midst of some of our pain, sometimes God is still speaking. He just may not be doing it in a way that you expect, or he may not be giving you the answer that you want. He may not be taking it away from you as quickly as you think. Healing, freedom from pain, anxiety, or grief. And then we can fall into the habit of thinking, well, he didn't take it away from me, he didn't answer my prayer, therefore God is silent and distant from me. But sometimes, if we're honest, if we think about it, in some of our circumstances, God has given us an answer already to the questions we are unwilling, but we're unwilling to be quiet enough to actually accept it and sit with it. It's like kids, when they ask one parent for something and the parent says, no, they go to the other parent and they say, daddy isn't listening to me right now. The truth is, daddy is listening and daddy gave you an answer. You just didn't like the answer that came. So you go and try and find another answer. 
They pretend I didn't say anything. In the midst of difficult times, God can speak to us sometimes in different ways, but sometimes we're not comfortable with the answer. Or God speaks to us in a different way than we're used to in another season of our lives, when we were not in the midst of challenges. God spoke to us in a certain way, and we learned carefully how to hear to him and listen to him in that. But sometimes in the midst of pain and suffering, God actually changes the way in which he comes to us. He might still be speaking, but we might not be accustomed to listening in that way. So, keep listening. Keep talking. Keep hoping. And keep persevering. I love the way that the message puts Lamentations 3.29. says, wait for hope to appear. Do not run from trouble. Take it full face. The worst is never the worst. Why? Because the master, God, will not ever walk out and fail to return. We live in a culture that is accustomed to instantaneous results. If we don't get our glasses within new glasses within one hour, it's unthinkably long. If blood work takes more than two days, we're absolutely incensed. If I have to wait for more than three cars in a Starbucks drive through lineup, it ruins my whole day. And the danger is that this, speak, this thinking can actually bleed into our spiritual lives. And so if we don't hear life-altering lightning bolts from God, the very first time that we journal, we write the process off as completely unhelpful, and God isn't going to speak to me in that way. If we cry out to our God, and he seems not to answer in our pain immediately, we think, well, I have an answer from God. It's just total silence from him, which may not be true. God may have heard us, but he just hasn't given us the answer we're looking for in the time frame that we pictured it. We want out, and we want out now. But in the scriptures, we're reminded again and again of the value of persevering, and persevering through sufferings. Something happens to our faith in our lives when we actually allow it to, if you'll permit the metaphor, to to slow roast in the oven instead of expecting quick results in the microwave. Isaiah 48.10 says, God speaking, I have refined you, he says. Not as silver is refined, I have refined you in the furnace of suffering. I hate that verse. I wish it was not in the Bible. That God would want to use or have a purpose for something in my life, a suffering or for suffering as a category is unsettling. It's not very helpful But it is true. Why does God not rescue you and I right away from our sufferings? Maybe part of something is happening in our lives in that process that cannot happen in any other way. In the New Testament, Paul sees his life and his hardships through that lens, and he actively invites others into that process. As crazy as it sounds, as a community, he says to 2 Timothy 2, 3, endure suffering along with me. Are you in the midst of hardship right now in your life? Keep persevering. Finally, keep learning. Lamentations 3 says, and Al hinted at this in his story as well, trying to figure out and wrestle with the question of what am I learning about God in this season and what conceptions do I need to be open to relearning in some way? 
Lamentations 3 says, test and examine our ways. Isaiah 30 verse 20 has a vivid word picture. It says, though the Lord gave you adversity for food and suffering for drink, he will still be with you and he will teach you. And oftentimes we want to do what Sean talked about and bargain and say, God, if, if I just do this, you know, if you take this away from me, I'll serve you for my whole life. We want to rush to the other side and steps and say, okay, God, what are you trying to teach me now? I want to learn it very quickly. This is my temptation so I can move on, so I can get past this thing, right? Just teach it to me now, and then we'll get on with business as usual. But what I'm finding in my own life is that I need to learn that what happens in the middle of that storm, what happens in my heart in the bottom of that muddy pit, when you're wrestling with depression, chronic illness, whatever it is, that God is still with me. 1 Peter 4 says, If you're suffering in a manner that pleases God, keep on doing what is right. Trust your lives to God who created you, for he will never fail you. Lamentation says it this way, the faithful love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh every morning. And so for me, that's the biggest takeaway from the whole book of Lamentations. Is that God may seem distant or silent, but he's never absent. And you and I may not get all the answers that we feel we need or want or are entitled to on this side of eternity. But the one answer that we do have amidst the silence is God's voice resounding loud and clear in his word is saying, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. In the midst of a storm, you and I have a choice to make and to walk with those around us. We can believe the lie that God has totally left and cares nothing for us, or we can cling to the invitation and keep hoping and keep talking and keep listening and keep persevering and keep learning and keep trusting and keep going back to each of those things time and again as we need to, as God continues to teach and shape our hearts and as we walk with those around us through deep waters. We're going to move into our time of prayer response. I'm going to ask the team if they would come and lead us in two songs of response. And we have people who are willing to pray for you, pray with you in this time. Uh, Keith and Melissa Reed will be available over on this side, and Dale Moore and I will be available, and Ruth Allen will be available over on this side uh, to pray. And so once the band has led us in these two songs of response, uh, certainly you're free to head up and pick up your kids or down and pick up your kids. But the band will continue leading us or developing a practice here at Jericho Ridge of not rushing away, but just living in that space where if God wants to speak to you about something, or if you want to speak to God about something, creating an environment where that can happen. And so if you want to kneel, if you want to stay seated, if you want to stand, as we worship together, if you want to come and physically come for prayer, it doesn't have to be about something big and onerous in your life. Some deep question that you have can be about very something that you're facing in your life or something you want to celebrate uh, with another individual here in this community. But my sense is that God wants to speak to us in powerful and in fresh ways to some of us today. And so don't short-circuit that process in any way. I'm going to pray for you as we move into this time. God, I want to say uh, thank you for your presence. 
Thank you for those that have shared about their own journey and experiences there. And we ask, Father, that you would continue to teach us that we are not alone. Continue to remind us of the truths of your word. Continue to remind us of the things that we know to be true. We ask that you would stir up faith in our hearts, God, at this time as we continue in a posture of response. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.